Welcome to the Grad School Femtoring Podcast, the place for first-gen students of color to prepare for grad school. This is Dr. Yvette Martinez Fu, and I will be serving as your femtor, providing you with tips and tricks and everything else you need to know to get into and successfully navigate grad school. For over 10 years, I've been helping first-gen students of color get into top grad programs in their field, and I'm really excited to support you on your academic journey too. Welcome back everyone to another episode of the Grad School Fem Touring Podcast. This is your host, Doctora Yvette, and today we get to cover one of my favorite topics, which is the topic of motherhood and cultura in grad school. I even wore my Chicana Mother Work shirt today, <laughs> honoring the topic because it's really meaningful to me. Um, but our special guest is Doctora Melissa Abeita. Doctora Melissa is a mother, a partner, daughter, a first-gen scholar. Her impact on the field of higher ed has been demonstrated through all the avenues of her scholarly identity, through research, writing, and or practice. Her scholarship is significant to the field of higher ed as the impact of her scholarship centers on the narratives of student populations that have traditionally and often been left in the margins of research and in practice. So welcome to the show, Doctora Melissa. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I'm happy to have you here too. So I would love for folks to hear more about you about your your backstory so tell us who you are what you do and how did you get to become doctora melissa it was quite the journey <laughs> i will say um i i think i always knew i wanted to go to college but i didn't know what i would be when i was when i grew up or anything like that i um i'm the first in my family in my immediate and extended family to go to college and I feel like I scrapped to get here, <laughs> but I will say um, it started with just an inquiry and observation in, I feel like I don't want to go back to high school, but I'll just, I'll just, I guess, start there is that I would notice, you know, it with my high school counselor, the meetings would go, um, my meetings would be very quickly, it would be very mm. quick. I'd be in and out with the counselor. And then I noticed that the uh, some other students, they would be in there a lot longer, they would come out with like this whole plan for their life. And I'm like, well, where's my plan? Wow. Like, what about me? Um, and so then I would request another meeting with my counselor and I, I would just inquire and they're like, oh, well, they're going to college. So, you know, I have to spend a little bit more time with them. I'm like, okay, well, what about me? Where am I, like, which college am I going to, you know? And it was suggested that I go to Job Corps, which was, this was in San Diego, California. And Job Corps, if you look, if you look it up, it's, probably for individuals who've dropped out of high school, who um, it's like a vocational kind of step, being stone, I guess you could say. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to job court. I have no idea. I came home, I told my mom and my mom's like, immediately no, like why is the counselor suggesting job court for you? And my mom thought it was problematic. So we requested meetings with the counselor. And then I started to, again, pay attention, like, okay, I'm being tracked, right? I'm yes. being tracked into this, um, into this vocational program. And so then I kept just, I was adamant, like, I want to go to college. How do I get there? And finally, she said, well, there's community college. I'm like, oh, what is that? And she, she goes, well, you don't have to take the SATs or the um, ACTs, you know, you go for a few years and then you transfer to university. And I'm like, yes, like sign me up. How do I do that? And I remember 
going on my own, taking, I had like no support from the educational school, like the educational system. I went on my own, figured out how to, like, I think I took the ACTs. The results came in. I didn't even know how to read the scores. I didn't know what they meant, but I remember taking the envelope back to the counselor, like, okay, I did it. I did what everyone else is doing. Like, what does this mean? Do I get into college now? And she's like, no, you have to apply to college. I'm like, why do I keep having to ask these questions? Like, why don't you just tell me like what it is? Like, give me the whole roadmap yeah. so I can get there. Um, so kind of a long story short, I actually, and I'll share this because um, I feel like it came up recently in a, in a different conversation with some of my students here, but I went to, I came to, this was in California. I came to Texas and um, I started at the community college here. And in the state of Texas, if you didn't graduate from the high school, you have to take this sort of like graduation exit exam. And because I didn't graduate from high school in Texas, I was immediately put in remedial classes, like remedial math, remedial English. And I would ask like, can I be tested out of this? They said, no, it's, you know, it's a gate, it's gatekeeping. Like you have to go through these courses. Um, I did that for a year. I realized I didn't like it here. And so I moved back to California. And then that's when I learned that all those remedial courses I took for a year didn't transfer. And so then that's when I first, at that experience alone, I think was my pathway into higher ed because I'm like, why, why are we doing this to people, right? And why are we, why do we have these barriers and these like, these, these inequitable access, right? Yeah. Like, why are we doing this to like, not just everybody, but it's specifically it's for communities of color, right? We're, yeah. we're gatekeeping them out of college. Um, and that's not fair. And that's not right. And so that sort of led me on this like long path um, to to where I am today. So I, I ended up, I finished um, at Southwestern Community College in Chula Vista. I transferred to San Diego State University for my bachelor's. And then I went there for, I was regionally bound at the time. So I went there for my bachelor's, my master's and my doctorate. Um, and that took about 10 years. And then during the pandemic, I, with my family and I, we decided that I would do a national search um, for the professorate. And that brought us back to Texas. And so now I just finished up my second year of tenure. And I know I skipped a whole bunch, but I, <laughs> I think that that's generally is, is you know, is, is essentially what motivated me to, to kind of focus on the research that I do and focus on educational inequities. And then now that I'm in the state of Texas, oh my gosh, I just, I, I just last week, my students were telling me about these, um, these additional exams that students have to take. So not only do you have to take the, like the high school exit exam, but when you're accepted into a Texas university, you have to take another exam. And I'm like, there are the, there are the, there's, all these barriers that they have yeah. that are written into legislation, right? That are like Texas laws. And it's just, it's ridiculous. So I'm here to dismantle all of it. <laughs> yes, yes. And also like how interesting the differences in the barriers based on different states. Yeah. And um, how that just places more barriers, like you said, to communities of color. And then uh, I know you you skipped all the way to like second year, you know, tenured, which yeah. is, that's huge. Thank you. Thank <laughs> but you. also, I know that, you know, there was at some point in your higher ed or educational journey, you became a mama. And so yes. I would love to hear more about that side of your story, too. And, you know, 
at what point did you become a mom and and maybe even how that shifted or impacted influenced your thoughts on what you've already been talking about which is like the barriers to reaching kind of higher education for communities of color and underserved populations yes so i applied to my master's program around the same time i found that i was pregnant and i first thought immediately like things like this don't happen to me because of how, what it took to get me there, right? Like, I just, I'm not a person that applies to programs and I get into all of them. Like, it, I, I scrapped to get here, like I scrapped to get there. And so then when I found that I was pregnant, I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, like. Had you applied or were you up, about to I had already I had already applied and then I found oh, that I was pregnant. Oh, wow. I, and, yeah. and then I was going through the, I applied. I had got ex- like the first interview and I, then I, I was like, oh my gosh, but I'm pregnant. I'm showing. And, and I don't share this part often, but I, I think I, I clearly remember panicking and stressing of, over what to wear to the oh. interview because I didn't, I was showing at that point, I was probably four months pregnant, mm-hmm. five months pregnant. And I was scared that if they saw me pregnant, they wouldn't pick me for the program. They would assume that a new mother couldn't finish the graduate program and they would give my spot to somebody else. And so I remember literally finding clothing that would hide and cover my pregnancy. And I felt really ashamed about that because mm-hmm. you're, I was pregnant for the first time, but, and I felt like this is a, um, a point, like this is a, something in your life that you should be happy about. You should be proud about it. You know, you're bringing life into the world. Yeah. And I was hiding it for this program, right? Because it was, there was like this conflict of myself of I want this but I'm also like I'm a mother and I want this but I also want this like I want the 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 extra degree and you know the the career like I want both of them and so it was a really and it was a deep internal struggle that I had and it would be the last time that I had it to be honest when I started my master's program my daughter was seven weeks old so she was a newborn and everything completely changed (laughs) like I think for like the first 30 years of my life, I was quiet and I was silent about things. And I, I, I'm still finding my voice, but it was at that moment when I became a mother where I was like, now it's, it's, it's changes with me. It like, it stops here. Like everything that I took for, or like that I was silent about previously, like I'm no longer going to be silent about because now my daughter's watching me and she's going to like reflect and look at this. So motherhood and being in this master's program completely changed, um, I think, like a fiber in me forever. But uh, after that, I would show up to my doctor to my master's program, like unapologetically with her. Um, well, I won't say that entirely. I say I moved into the space unapologetically. So there's a story of um, one of my professors who was a mentor, who's a mentor of mine. And I had um, my child care at the time kind of fell through and so I didn't know what to do so I remembered I had to go to class so I drove to class with my daughter in the back seat and I was just crying on the way to school because I'm like what am I supposed to do like I'm supposed to be in class right now but I you know I don't have child care and I remember going into his office like maybe 30 minutes before class starting and he's like what's going on and I explained to him like I don't know what to do. Like I, we have class, but my daughter's here. I'm prepared. Like I read this, I read the chapters, like I'm prepared for class, but, um, I, I don't know what to do. He was like, so what? Just sit in the back. 
And I'm like, well, what if she cries? He goes, well, then she cries. You step out and then you come back in. It's fine. And I was just like realizing I'm, I'm taking up space in academia, right? Mm. Like and what the classroom looks like, it doesn't look like a mother with a baby inside. You know, it, it was, it was this very clear moment. And I tell him this to this day, like if he had said something differently to me, it would have changed the trajectory of my life. Like that moment I would have went home. If he would have said like, come back next week, I would have never came back. I would have been like, okay, maybe, maybe this is not for me. Maybe I'm, I'm supposed to be an at-home mother or I'm supposed to pick something else. Like maybe I'm not supposed to be trying to do graduate school and motherhood at the same time. And I was working. So like, um, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be doing all of this. And so I tell him it really, his empathy at that moment really changed the trajectory of my life. And um, that's was also like a really huge milestone that just kind of made me step into academic spaces unapologetically as a mother, right? And so there's a lot of times where I will bring my daughter, I started to bring my daughter, you know, as she got older when it was appropriate to study groups or, you know, like to presentations when, when it was feasible, right? Like I felt like when there were, or, you know, sometimes for, for two reasons, one, it was if I needed to, as of childcare. And for two, if it was a moment where she could see me in that mm. space, like as she got older. Um, and yeah, she's just, everyone who I've met since then, it's like, it's a package deal. You have me and my daughter, like it's everyone, you know, knows about me and my kid. Like it's, it's, we're no longer, um, it's no longer like two separate things. It's not something that I'm not willing to, to kind of hide or to be ashamed about at all. Um, one thing I mentioned, I jot down was, was NASPA, right? This, this national student affairs organization. And I, I just, gosh, a couple of years ago, they had, um, they had registration for their, their annual conference. And oh, I think I know guest, what you're going to say. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. If you bring a guest, you know, they, they charge for the guests. And then at, for one year, I don't know where they decided to charge for children. And it really, really bothered me. And I did it. I, I posted it on my stories. I do stories with my, my safe spot, right? Twitter. I'm a little, <laughs> I, I'm like, I don't know about Twitter sometimes. I'm but the I, same way. <laughs> yeah. I do stories. I go off on IG stories all the time. So I posted on my IG stories one weekend and I got like a really big response from it. And I'm like, you know what? Cause it's not right. Right. It's, yeah. And Melania, my daughter had been to NASPA with me before as like a four-year-old. And I, like, I can understand if they had childcare places for our children or they were going to do like children activities, like there were reasons to charge, but I'm like, there's no reasons just, there's no reason to charge a minor who's not doing anything. And who's actually, it's the, the decision to take a child to a conference is such a difficult decision that a parent's making. And it's, they're probably making it because there's no other choice. Yeah. Like there's no childcare. Like, I don't think they understand. Like it's 10 times harder to travel with kids to a conference than mm -hmm. it is to go. And then the fact that you're going to charge them, it was, that was just over the top for me. Um, and so I ended up tweeting about it and by, and I, I'm not going to say it was my doing, because I will say that thankfully there were senior faculty that backed it up. And I think it was their voices that kind of elevated the situation that by Monday, they had completely removed the charges and like taken it down from the website. And so it's like that advocate, like 
like just advocating for student parents, I think is, is what's critical. Like even yeah. what's, what's ironic is that I went to the conference and my daughter didn't go. My daughter, I had no intentions of my daughter going, but they were asking like, hey, where's Melania? You tweeted about the thing. I'm like, oh yeah, she was never coming. That wasn't for me. That was for, because it's deterring a parent who potentially was going to go or a student parent who was going to go and had no other option and you just made it harder for them right you're creating these barriers for them but at that at that particular time like I had no intention on taking my kid but I just I was just I felt like I just had to say something because it was it was wrong right and I, I try to think about that in in kind of like different aspects like we don't think about our parent our student parents often right we don't think about um if we're having events for them on campus, like is there childcare or is, yeah. are there children activities? Like, is it feasible for them? We, we just, we kind of ignore this, um, this population in general. And I think I went on way other tangent, but. Um, no, 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 this okay. really, it, it, it ties in because, yeah. because I mean, that's another question that I was gonna ask you. You talked about how motherhood completely shifted things for you. And you're like, okay, I'm a different person from here on out. I'm gonna be speaking up more, showing up more, taking up more space, advocating more. Um, and then talking about, wow, the power of mentorship and how if it hadn't been for that professor and his supportive response to you, maybe, I don't know, maybe you might have been pushed out like so many other mamas have been pushed out of higher ed. But then, yeah, that that prompted me to want to ask, like, how did this experience of becoming a mother and mothering in graduate school then impact the way that you now advocate on behalf of student parents and you support parenting students, mothers um, who who are, you know, in your own surroundings now as a, as a professor. And, and you gave a perfect example because that was actually so big that I remember seeing that. And I remember we reposted that on the Chicana Mother Work IG yeah. too. Like it was a big deal. It was uh, among I, uh, all my mother scholar friends. I know we were all kind of like, what is going on? This is not okay. How dare they? Like, what? Why? Why would they do this? And we already struggle so much to even have any spaces that provide care or child care options. But then to add an an additional barrier, that's just nonsense. Um, so yeah, are there other ways that uh, you find yourself advocating on behalf of student parents? Because it's you know it's been. I don't know how long since you were a graduate student and there are more conversations and I see more folks talking about this and being embracing and kind of having more active conversations, especially online about being a student parent, about being a mom and being a, a mama scholar or mother scholar. But there's still a lot of barriers and there's still, I mean, institutions of higher ed still don't necessarily always support uh, or provide services that that support parenting students? They really don't. And for some reason, I feel like there's this stigma that just exists about it. Mm -hmm. um, last fall or last like winter graduation, my daughter had a school event and what happened was the commencement, they changed the dates. Our commencements used to be on Saturdays. They changed it to Fridays, like right in the middle of the day. And we're required to go as faculty. And my daughter had a school event. And after her event, um, they're dismissed and they, they rarely get dismissed early here in Texas. And so I had a dilemma. One, I had to go to her, her event, but then two, I had to like 
bring her with me to to commencement because I at the again I'm always in these spaces where I like I don't have childcare and these at, at these random moments usually I do but it's just there's these pockets of, of times where I don't and so I remember telling my department chair I'm gonna be about 10 minutes late I'm gonna sneak in the back and I'm sneaking in the back with my daughter okay because again I'm in this space um in this region where I don't we don't know anybody I don't know yeah. anybody here and I one I don't know anybody and I don't even trust anyone else to touch to like to watch my child especially because I don't know anyone and so she's coming with me um he was like yeah sure no problem and I will never forget the death stares I got from my colegas who were just like oh my like the whispers like the whispers she's got her kid with me I was like yes I do turn around and like watch the front and she's gonna sit there and not bother anybody she's 10 years old and she can you know it'll be fine and one it was to her kind of like come to like work with mommy day whatever Mm -hmm. um but it's also like just reminding like I'm gonna continue to like decolonize academic spaces yes make it completely uncomfortable for everybody because why why should it be uncomfortable though right like we are humans we are mothers we have we have other identities other than Mm -hmm. being a professional and it's okay that they blend sometimes um and so I just oh my gosh that it's it really I think you really realize who people are in moments like that like who's supportive and who's not supportive and like okay got you like you know um but it it was it was also kind of again for her that she like this is what mommy does like this is mommy's work and then it's also not even for that. I also intentionally take up that space again for the like student mothers, yes. the student parents, so they can see it too. Like, no, like if you need your kid to come through commencement and sit next to you, it's not gonna, it's gonna be okay. That there's plenty of chairs. There's often empty chairs. Like the world's not gonna end because there's you know a child sitting next to somebody. And then and it's also it's kind of like, I think hypocritical of how we ch- like treat our children, like, yeah. um, of like what society says about children too, like that they should just be able to take up space. Um, and I feel like they're often not given that permission, right. Just to, yeah. just to kind of coexist amongst us. Um, so I, given my positionality now, I, I'm definitely more purposeful or intentional with taking up that space. Um, other times is I will also, I do two things in my classroom. First, the beginning of the class is I, I send out like this, like survey um, before class starts. And I want to know who they, who my students are like before in their classroom. And I think that's almost for me, like it calms my anxiety. Like who, like, it's like the first day of school, but like, I don't know who yeah. they are just off a list of names. And do you I ask them like, yeah, like, who are you or like describe yourself or how I, I'm just I curious. Have, <laughs> yeah. I have a whole, so this is the one thing that I do good. Yeah. <laughs> this is the, the one thing that I streamlined that I do really good. Oh, cause and I'm like, thinking of the folks who listen to my podcast who are also instructors and professors oh, who are okay. like, hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I, and then I, this is from my, my femtor, uh, Dr. Vasquez, cause I, I, but I, I think I treat it a little bit but it's like an intake form it's like your name your pronouns your title um institution that you are and then your like what other identities you have Mm. are you a caretaker are you a parent um and I ask that because I feel it's important to know the student holistically right because it to acknowledge that okay you are a student but you also are these other you also wear these other hats and different variations right um, so it's, I think it's just important to know one, 
I have a whole another like thought about grading and that being a social construct. But in the event somebody is going through something and it's like, oh, well, yeah, remember they're, they're a caretaker for their elderly parents and they're a mother of three, right? Like they have a lot going on. So just to have, just like to have some empathy, right? Like as we're moving through the semester. And so I asked that and then going in, I also introduced myself. It's also like a shared space. It's also a reminder that we, we both have multiple identities. Like they're sharing their piece with me, but I'm also going to introduce myself and Melania on the first day of school, like, you know, through an image. But also to know, like, if I guess in two ways. One, if we're having um, class online, that is completely okay and should be normalized for children to be in the background or, you know, like, don't feel embarrassed if you have to, zoom, you know, cam off or whatever, because you are taking care of things at home. Like, I completely understand. And then also, if we have our face-to-face -face class, if you ever need to bring your children to, to class, like, it's it's completely, I want to normalize that space yeah. from, or like that from the jump. Um, so I think I haven't taught face-to-face -face in, in a minute, like, probably in a year. But the last class that I did teach face-to-face, -face, um, I brought my daughter to, to like, uh, we had, um, <laughs> and me disrupt, dis in disrupting academia, our last class was at a restaurant. And so instead of doing like formal presentations, we just had like a platica, like a discussion oh. while we were eating. Um, and then I, so I brought my daughter in that sense. Because I want her to see, she does see me away and travel like a lot. So again, at any time that I can incorporate her or I can bring her in like that, that evening class, it kind of worked out. I was like, um, perfect. Hop in the car, come with me. Let's go to class because it's an hour away. Yeah. And then, um, you know, just kind of, I don't know, just sit amongst the, the, the classmates and just like kind of listen and tune in. But it, it's also something for the students for, you know, because they're all educators they're all probably you know kind of like administrators in their in their sense some most of my students are k-12 administrators and then i have some students that are in the higher ed sphere but um it's just to normalize it and to kind of give them i'm also in a region <laughs> that's very traditional um so it's like latin like 98 latin a and it's mm -hmm. it's very different and so i'm what do you mean by traditional that's a good question I would say traditional Mexican American that okay. the women should be um, at home. Oh, I see. See, uh -huh. yeah, and so it's it's very it's not normalized. It's still like not normalized that, or it's still a new thought for like women to be in doctoral programs mm. down here. Um, that's pushing the envelope. And so then, even furthermore, when you have parents that are like you know student mothers that are going through these programs like I feel they are also in this tug of war with yes. their families and with you know the institution and so yeah I try to break that by saying like it's okay it's okay to incorporate yeah. family with your academics and whatnot what that I space for them. I, that's really good I, I love everything that you shared especially of like uh, shifting the norms of like what a traditional classroom looks like and and having this like final um final class in in we said like having dinner or in some sort of yeah. like restaurant setting or eating setting I love that um but what you what you were just sharing right now about how like you're in this more traditional space with folks who uh especially if they're women may not be expected to be 
pursuing a career, especially even less if they're moms. Um, it reminds me of of this concept of cultural straddling. So it's like both straddling different identities and also like straddling different cultures and the different expectations. And I wanted to ask you about that too, because it's not, you're not just talking about the experience of motherhood in academia. There are plenty of books about motherhood in academia that focus on white moms. But in your case, you're talking about mothers of color, Latina moms. And in the space that you're at, you're, you're, you know, in the primarily predominantly Mexican area. So how has culture impacted the way that you um, have navigated higher ed and also the way that you currently support students? So maybe, well, I, yeah, your cultural background and also the background of your students. I think I personally had a different um, experience in that my mother, so I would say I, I was a military child, so we moved mm. around a lot. And so in that, my mom, it, I'm an only child, so my it was, you know, my mom and I would often um, have to learn these spaces on our, for our own, for ourselves, right? And so I think that gave my mom a lot of independence, right? And so then my mom taught me that, like, so in that sense, I think culturally I was raised yeah. differently, right? I, I was That's raised so interesting. Yeah. I didn't know yeah. that about you. <laughs> yeah. And so my like one of our first duty stations was in was in Puerto Rico. And my like my the which is another thing, the language is while it's Spanish, it's very different Spanish mm -hmm. than from Texas, where my mom was born and raised. And so my mom had to learn almost a whole new dialect and like navigate, I mean, everything, like learning how to get a driver's license, learning, you know, the banking system, learning the schooling system, which is different from the US yeah. mainland. And so I think in her having to, to kind of navigate that for herself, she kind of went through her own independence and then like kind of instilled that into me. And so I mean, when I, so then I guess back to when I was challenged with like motherhood and higher ed, I remember her saying, or even probably when I was going into the doc program, because um, I applied and I go, I'm throwing my name in the hat. I'm applying this year, but I don't expect to get it this year. I, I'm applying to go through the process to learn, but I'm really wanted, I really had thought I would get it the following year. And I didn't know, I ended up getting it that first year that I applied. And I was like, oh no, like I want this, but again, I wanted it next year. And I, I call it like, we have a family meeting because mm -hmm. my, my parents live with us. So in my household, it's myself, my partner, my daughter, and my parents. And my mom says, no, you're going to do it now because your daughter, you know, Melania was younger. And she goes, it's quote unquote easier to do it when they're younger than when they're much older. She's like, when she's older, she's going to need you more. You know, wow. she's going to be going through emotional development. Like she's going to, she's going to need her mom's attention a little bit more right now is the perfect age for you to be gone and you to focus on your studies because she, she's not going to remember this kind of part of of you being gone <laughs> and so um in that sense I was like okay I'm, I'm trust although every semester I'll be like I'm I'm done with school like this is I'm, I'm quitting this they'd be like okay are you done rant like are you done like are you done ranting did you get it all out your system I'm like yeah They're like okay go finish it <laughs> go go finish <laughs> I, I mean I would always have this like moment with myself where I, I'm not going to finish school but um so I think for me it was different I was given it, it I had a a family unit that it was um 
I think it goes back to that cultural piece, right? Of, of it was, it's kind of like, it's all of ours, right? Yeah. It's not just my, me going through it. So in that sense, like I had help, I had a village um, with, with, in, with raising my daughter. So even to this day, like when my daughter starts school, I would, I'll meet the teacher and then I let them know, like, there's going to be points at throughout the year where I may not be available or I may not be able to go to something, but somebody from my family will be there. If it's not my partner, it's my mom. And if neither of them are available, like my dad will go. <laughs> but at some point, like, trust me that they're all reporting back to me. Um, and so it, just know that there, there will always be some family member oh. um, to support my daughter at, at anything if I can't be there. And so um, I think that's the difference in cultural is that, and I try to, I see that here with my students, right? Is that there's these family units of support that yes. we have and that that's so critical. And I also want them to kind of also like y'all realize is like some of my students have never read like Yoso's community culture wealth or yeah I, that's exactly what I was about to yeah. say that's the cultural wealth right there <laughs> yeah they've never been introduced to it and I'm like oh my gosh like y'all have to see this because this is you all are living this right like um I'm like even one of my students she actually says she's going to be my first doctoral student who who advanced the candidacy um but the the day before she was advancing she's the mother of three and her husband works kind of um like not always in the region, right? Mm -hmm. He's some he travels for work, and so she has her mom there to support her and her sister. And I remember she, she's like, I kind of like didn't know what to do, and I said, you know what? Because it was online. I'm like, mm -hmm. if you need to come to my house and your kids need to stay, you know, in the living room, and I need to put you in a different room so that you can present your material to the rest of the committee, we will do. She lives actually right down the street from me. I was like, we will do that. And this oh. was during a time, this was just uh, two weeks ago where we had like really bad storms. So a lot of the area ha has been out of electricity for like for like days. And so I'm checking with these students. It was really hard to kind of schedule them, right? So it's like, do we risk rescheduling it and then further delaying their process? Or do we just like, what support do you need? Wow. In entirely, like not just you as a student, but I understand that there's, you have a family, like, you know, there's, and this is the middle of star testing for us in Texas with our students, our kids have, you know, these, um, these state tests, exams, yeah. standardized tests. Yeah. And they cannot be rescheduled. So we have, we're in the middle of a storm. There's power outs. Um, we have star exams. And so I'm just like, what support do you need? Like, if you need to come to my, I have electricity, you need to come here and we need to like put people in different rooms. We can do that for an hour. Um, but it's, it's just letting the students know that they're like, at least in me, like they have, they have a like community, like I'm, mm -hmm. I'm here to support in however that I can. Um, but I think the, the students who I've, who I've, um, who I chair and who I are in my classroom, they, they're amazing. I, I did, these group of students in the Valley are so special in such a beautiful way. Like, um, I've learned a lot from them and I continue to learn a lot from them, but I, and I, 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 we have, we, we have these moments of, you know, I have frustration with legislation and whatnot, but it's like, I know that, um, that at the end of the day, we're in community. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that and for sharing 
such a powerful example because that's real. That's like life, you know, life happens, yeah. storms happen, all kinds of things happen. And your students know that you have their back and that you see them like as a whole person, you see all, you know, all of their circumstances, not just like, okay, you got to figure it out no matter what. And I don't want to hear about it. Um, which is what some of us experience, unfortunately, in our higher ed journeys. Um, but also that goes to show that you have an awareness of like where they're coming from and like the type of support that they need and the, the value of community too. Um, I wanted to ask you, we're, we're going to get close to kind of to wrapping up, but I, I definitely want to hear your thoughts or, or words of, of advice or consejos that you have for any students, specifically mothers, um, mothers who are also first-gen moms, and even parenting students who are listening to this episode or who listen to it and are maybe not quite, you know, maybe they're in that that path of like, I'm trying to figure out how to go back to school. So maybe they're trying to figure out going from CC to uh, college or from college to grad school. And yeah, like what words of advice would you give them as they kind of go on their own journey? I would say that you're not alone. I know that it feels alone because there were plenty and many of times where I felt that I was doing it alone. And then I, I you have to find your community and Find that however that works for you. So um, whether it can be virtual or in the physical space. So I ended up finding my community virtually through Instagram. And I think that really saved, saved me because it made me feel like I wasn't. Can you say more? Yeah. So I, while I was in my doc program, I was commuting an hour. And I remember driving and I, I mean, it was hard, right? Like I'm working full time. I'm in a doctoral program. I'm a mother and my daughter goes to school an hour away from where I work and where my school is. And so I would just be alone in my thoughts a lot <laughs> for an hour. And I, I, I'm like, there's no way that I'm the only one dealing with this. Like I cannot be the only one dealing with this and, and, and struggling through this or feeling like I'm struggling through this, like alone, like where are the other moms? Like, where are the other parents? Like, we have to be out here. And so I, that's where I started my Instagram, the academic soul, just to kind of vlog, like mini vlog, like mm -hmm. one to find other people, <laughs> like where, where are the other mommy scholars at and how can we support or just uplift or just know that we're not alone in that space. Um, and then, you know, just kind of like a quick hello. I will tell you, there's so many times where other moms or like student parents would send me just a message or like a meme or like a, you got this, or like you DM. And the, it, it may seem like nothing, but those little messages literally keep you going yes. when you feel like you're doing it alone and you don't know, you can't see yourself at the end of the finish line, but they, those messages just keep you going all the way through. And so I, that's where I go back to say, like, find your community and however you can find it. Like yeah. for me, that community was virtual. And so if you can, if you need a virtual community or if you can find that community on your campus, and then if that community, if you think it does not exist on your campus, create it because yes. there's other student parents also there that are maybe feel invisible or are currently invisible, but you know, they shouldn't be right. Like they should be supported. Um, so I would just, 
encourage that, encourage you to find your community on campus, off campus, um, and, and just keep going. And I promise it gets better. Um, and you just keep going. I also, I, I just recently I had a someone share with me that they were accepted into a doctoral program and they were nervous because they weren't sure if it was the right time because mm. they got a promotion and they have children. And I, you know, I said, I, I don't think there's ever a right time. Life is going to always happen. Always. You're, it, there's never going to be a perfect time where all the stars align. It's just a matter of figuring it out and figuring out like, okay, there's going to have to be some adjustment adjustments and you make those adjustments as you go um, and then just keep going. And, you know, I think that's why I keep oversharing my life because I don't know. I don't, I, I feel like, okay, not that I do it, you can do it type of thing, but it's just to know that you're not alone, right? Yes. Like we're, we're not alone in, in these thoughts and, and these aspirations that we, um, that we can continue to uplift each other and help each other authentically, because that's also very much needed. We're, I think we are against traditional norms. And so that if we can find community and find each other, um, I want to say, I, I, tell me, there's a, a fellow Chingona who I've connected with online and she posts, she's a single mother who's amazing. And she posts like at four in the morning where she's up giving, um, she's up doing laundry. And I was up that early to work. <laughs> and so I get her like, these are like secret mom hours, right? Yes, they are. <laughs> they're, they're, they're secret mom hours. I was like, hey, good morning. I'm upgrading. And I don't post it because I'm also like conflict. I feel like there's this, you know, battle against like hustle, what's it called? Yeah. Like hustle, hustle mentality or I don't want to, I don't want people to think I'm like contributing to hustle culture, but it's also like, it's me surviving. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, so part of me is like conflicted. Like, do I share this moment? Because this is the real, like, this is really how I, how I, I feel like I have to survive um, because we're against this capitalist society. But it, it is what it is, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, if I want to have all these things or I want to do all these things, I have to find the time in when everybody else is sleeping sometimes to get my work done. I feel that way. So, because I work at all hours, yeah. but I don't work all the time at all hours. Right, right. So sometimes I'm like sending messages and it's late at night or really early morning. And I'm like, I know, I know I'm like really into not grinding and resting and all that, but but like you said, you just got to find those pockets of time and, and do yeah. what works best for you. Yeah. And then um, I would say that I, people think I start my day. Well, I do start my day early, but I'm also like, I, I go, I, recently I've been running like at 10 in the morning, but I am going to work until 11 o'clock at night or, you know, it, it, it varies and it flows. Like I, I may take a two hour break, you know, when my daughter gets home so that we connect, we have dinner or she has an appointment. And then it's like, okay, then I go teach a class and, you know, it just, it works for me. Yes. And I find And I think that's the like, figure out what works for you and what you're comfortable with, and do that. Um, and, and support each other in that, right? Like, everyone's okay to have a different schedule. I also like, I could never, I don't think cognitively, I could do a nine to five, like I need to have breaks, I needed to be like, my schedule needs to be fluid. Um, and like, I'm inspired at different parts, different times of the day, like, it's just, you know, and I think that's okay. Like we, we're not machines in the sense where, you know, we need to be bogged down, you know, this time to this time and, and that's it. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing. Um, I wanted to just ask one last question if there are any other words of advice or closing words that you wanted to share. And if not, for folks who resonated with what you shared, who want to connect further, who want to support you in your work or find you and contact you in some way, shape or form, how can they connect? How can they reach you? Yes. So you can connect with me on Instagram um, at Academic Soul. I um, am currently updating my website, um, melissabeta.com. If you wanted to, I, I don't know, bring me to your campus. I, we didn't talk much about my research, but my research focuses on uh, formerly incarcerated and uh, formerly incarcerated and system impacted students. Um, and so I talk, I usually am brought to campus to speak yeah. about that. So you, you can say a little bit more about that. Yeah. I, I would love for you to, you know, if you have a couple more minutes to share a little bit more yeah. about your research, because I think that's really important too. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's critical. Um, so I'm also, I'm, I have family members that are currently informally incarcerated. So I identify as system impacted. And I really was drawn to this work because one, it, at the time it wasn't happening. And I really was curious if the student population existed on our campuses and if they did, what kind of support services are, are available for them and whatnot. And my research work started in California, which California is making strides and they're doing amazing out there. Um, and there's programming in all of the California educational, higher educational systems at the community colleges and at the four years. So California is doing great work. I'm currently in the state of Texas where I am experiencing there's the stigma, right? Not to say that the stigma doesn't exist in California, but that there's a little bit of more stigma that exists here in Texas, which it's like, okay, um, yes, the student population can be on our campuses. How do we invite them on our campuses? And then more so, how do we create programs and services for them? And then not just also, again, track them back to vocational programs, right? Because that's what we really do see a lot happening. It's like, how do we track them into actually degree granting programs? Yes. Um, and then how do we educate the staff and faculty and administrators in knowing like what's available for this population? It's just, it's a, a very invisible population that's been discarded by our society. And, and so I think you'll, you'll find me in, in advocating for, their, for them to have spaces on our campuses. That's amazing. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I was, yeah, you know, when I first reached out to you, I wasn't sure like which route you were going to go. And I, I, there was a part of me that was like, I hope she talks about this, this research because it is, um, it is, I mean, I've worked with formerly incarcerated students. I've worked with folks who have been part of the like underground scholars mm -hmm. and I get chills thinking just about how amazing these folks are and that we need to have more of these types of program and support services not just like you said in California, which was kind of where I was exposed to this kind of work, but across the nation, um, including, like you said, Texas and other states where it mm -hmm. continues to be stigmatized. So thank you for sharing that. And um, yeah, keep keep doing that work. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. So you said folks can reach you on Instagram and then where else so that we can make sure to get that in the show notes? Yes, on my website, melissabeta.com. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Doctora Melissa. It's been so awesome hearing from you, hearing about your journey, hearing about your experiences, how do you continue to advocate for a wide range of student populations. Um, I really, really appreciated having you here today. Thank you for having me.
Thanks so much for joining me in the Grad School Femtoring Podcast. If you liked what you heard, here are three ways you can support the show. The first is to make sure you're subscribed and leave a review of the podcast. If you leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, you become eligible for a free half-hour coaching session with me. Yes, that's right, one free session. Once you leave a review, you can email me a screenshot and I'll send you a link to sign up. The second way to show your love is to get yourself a copy of my free 15-page grad school femtoring kit, which includes resources on research, organization, grad school, and career prep. Go to gradschoolfemtoring.com slash kit to get it today. The third and last way to support my show is to follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and occasionally TikTok with the handle at gradschoolfemtoring. Thanks again and until next time.